Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. The words of Jeffrey Dahmer are voiced by an actor. Dahmer is serving 15 consecutive life sentences for the murders of 17 males. The most prolific slayer in the history of the state of Wisconsin. From 1978 to 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer murdered 17 men and boys. He cannibalized some of his victims, dismembered their bodies, and preyed on the vulnerable, becoming one of the most depraved serial killers in American history. But what is the real story of this most unlikely of killers? And could this ever happen again? I'm criminal psychologist Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, Jeffrey Dahmer. Episode 4, House of Horrors. It's 1991, and Jeffrey Dahmer is approaching his 31st birthday. He lives a solitary life, working a menial job in a chocolate factory and living by himself in a simple apartment in a rundown part of town. He keeps to himself and has little contact with anyone in a meaningful way. None of this is an accident. Living in a crime-ridden part of the city will enable him to go unnoticed. In apartment 213, he can finally fully live out his ultimate fantasies. Here, he will be able to control every aspect of his secret activity the killing of young men and boys. For this to work, there is one thing he needs to ensure, that he chooses his victims wisely. Annie Schwartz is the author of Monster, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. Dahmer was very purposeful, and he has confessed to this. He was very purposeful in who he chose as his victims. Now, it never ceases to disturb me when I hear about that. So I, I always have to say this when I'm discussing this case, that this is not my opinion. This is an observation of what it was like to be in this city at that time. So you go to the police and you say, I want to file a missing persons report because my son, who is gay, I haven't seen him. I mean, we haven't talked in a, in a couple of months, but it's really starting to get to be a long time. And I think there's something amiss. They had to know what it, you have to understand what it was like to report that back in the 80s and 90s. What was it like to go to the police with that crime? So then the police are going to investigate it. The police go to the bathhouses, right? They start talking to people because apparently people uh, were, uh, were getting drugged at the bathhouses. But when the police go to investigate, 
What are they going to investigate? Who are the witnesses? Who are they going to talk to? Oh, God, are you going to tell my, my parents? Are you going to tell my family? Are you going to tell my employer? I don't need my name on a police report someplace. It's the reason that people who are addicted to drugs, people who are prostitutes, people who live in any kind of disenfranchised community make an ideal victim because the police typically, life has changed now, but typically it's kind of a, oh, oh, you, you haven't talked to your son in like four weeks, but all of a sudden now that it's eight weeks, you think that something's wrong or now, now imagine that they don't even know that their loved one has a secret life. Well, where should we start to look for him? I don't know. I don't know. Another important factor is the gender of his victims. Serial killers overwhelmingly murder women. To have a serial killer preying on men and boys is rare. E. Michael McCann was Milwaukee's district attorney at the time. He explains. We did not know in Milwaukee that we had a serial male slayer on the loose. That was not known. So many young men just take off. They just get angry with their boss, a fight with their girlfriend, broke up with their family. Just take off. Don't so that I'm told the police don't invest much resources in those men because so often they come back and, and there isn't much, it'd be a waste of time. With children or women, it's quite different. They take that very seriously. If a woman disappears, a young woman, the presumption is it's foul play and resources are committed immediately. The same with children, of course. But with young men, whether they've changed that or not, I can't tell you. With young men, the experience is so many of them come back, leave in anger, come back, that it's improvident to extend, to expend substantial police work resources looking up for disappeared young men. All of this works in Jeffrey Dahmer's favor. He's already murdered 10 people, the most recent being an 18-year-old named Curtis Strotter, and law enforcement hasn't even noticed. His next victim would be 19-year-old Earl Lindsay. Rita, I would love it if you could tell me a little bit more about your brother Earl. What are your memories of your brother? All of them. I have all the memories of him because he had just turned 19. I remember the day he was born to the day he left here. Uh, he was very outgoing, outspoken, fearless. You get him, he'll get you back. One of those type of people. Uh, play pranks on you. He tried to sing, but he couldn't. Got in some trouble. What was his favorite trouble to get into? Sneaking, doing things he didn't have any business doing and thought it was so funny. He just thought that kind of stuff was hilarious. Well, he played drums too in church, believe it or not. <laughs> and he loved to eat caramel candies, those caramel chews. Which number in the family was he? He was the last. He was number six and I was number one. Oh, you were like a mom to him. The first and the last, yes, oh yes. Always respected me, had any problems with the other siblings, he would come and tell me. I think he found comfort in me. He could confide in me. He respected me, and I treated him not just like a brother, but a son and a mother, you know. Mm -hmm. That's the same story that I had always told. It never changed. 
I wasn't living in Milwaukee at that time. He had just left my house when I was living in Cleveland, Ohio. He had uh, gotten into some trouble, got into a fight with a guy. I don't, I don't know what happened. All I know is the outcome was, and the police was looking for him. So my mother, she brought him to me way in Cleveland, Ohio, and said, here, and left him there. She just dropped him off on me and left him there. Were your children around then? We had a lot of fun. He used to take my baby daughter, Mal, and that one song by Cher, I got you, babe, Sonny and Cher. He used to take her mouth and move it like, because she was a baby. He I got you, babe. He's so stupid. <laughs> he taught them how to cook, too. He taught, he taught my children how to cook. He was always in survival mode, too. That's what you either had to swim or drown. What were his ambitions? What did he want to be, or who did he want to be when he grew up? I just think he wanted to be outside of that home and have his own. He wanted his own place, a job, a car, and live a normal life, whatever that is. That's all he wanted. He wanted stability, love, a place where he could call home. How long was he with you for? For like 90 days, he was ready to go back. So I let him go back and he didn't even last 90 days in Milwaukee. On April 7th, 1991, Rita's brother, Earl Lindsay, leaves his home to go get a key cut. They had very much hardship. Hardship was in that household, so I'm pretty sure they was hungry or something that day. He went upstairs to live with the neighbors, and they gave him a key to go get made. And that's when he ran into Jeffrey Dahmer because the key shop was next door to the bookstore. That's how he met Jeffrey Dahmer. This part of Earl's story is just coming out. For you know, it's it's always been told, oh, Jeffrey Dahmer killed him, one of the victims. It never told why he ran into Jeffrey Dahmer, never told if he was really gay or not, never told his living situation, never told how he was raised, how he was brought up. It never told that part. As a matter of fact, it never really told none of the victim story. It was always about Jeffrey Dahmer and the people he murdered. Well, I can speak for Earl. There's a reason why he ran into him. His story is sort of different from the rest of the guys, you know, and then they come from a different family background, I survived. He didn't survive it. Can you tell us what happened on that day when he met Jeffrey Dahmer? He bribed him and asked him if he wanted to uh, make some money doing odd jobs. And he told him, yeah. So he told him he had to come back to his apartment. And that's what happened. And then he offered him that beer after he got in his apartment and put that sleeping potion in it. He killed Earl that day, April 7th. The circumstances of Earl's death are incredibly harrowing, but I think it's important that we don't shy away from them. 
After meeting near the bookstore, Dahmer takes Lindsay back to his apartment and drugs him. By now, Dahmer's apartment has become a Dantean epicenter of pain, deviance, and torture, as victim after victim find themselves in Dahmer's clutches. He works to a pattern. He lures victims to his apartment by offering to take their picture or paying them for sex. He gives them drinks laced with sleeping pills, and then he kills them using the easiest means available to him. Strangulation, stabbing, etc. Once dead, he dismembers them and enjoys the bodies by photographing them, practicing necrophilia, and keeping the body parts he likes best. But with Earl, Dahmer wanted to try something new. What if he could keep him longer? What if he could put him in a zombie-like state? Dr. Fred Berlin explains. He began thinking of ways of still being close to the people whose lives he was taking. Was there some way that they could still be there physically as companions? Maybe he could create a zombie that was not quite dead, but something between life and death. Very, very disturbed thinking that was part of him still, in a sense, trying to be with someone who wasn't quite dead, but was sort of half alive. His idea is horrific. He plans to conduct an amateur lobotomy on his victims by drilling holes into their skulls in which he will pour acid while they are still alive. I started using the drilling technique. Uh, I was getting tired of killing them and uh, having to deflesh them. So... I wanted to see if it was possible to make, uh, again, it, it sounds really gross, uh, zombies, people that would not have a will of their own but would follow uh, my instructions without resistance. He attempts to do this to Earl Lindsay, but he's dead within hours. Dahmer proceeds to strip the skin off of his lifeless body, and he keeps it in a vat of salt water in hopes of preserving it and keeping it with him. After several weeks, it putrefies, and Dahmer is forced to dispose of it. He adds Lindsay's skull to his collection. Meanwhile, Earl Lindsay's family is left wondering where he is. When did you first realize that your brother Earl was a missing person? He probably had been missing for a while, nobody was paying any attention. Nobody. He left home with no coat. He hadn't came home. It had snowed and everything. No Earl, no coat. Yeah. And then people were coming up to my mother and stuff, saying that they saw Earl here and they saw Earl there and just misleading her on. And now she knew something was, had happened to him because she is truly his mother. A mother knows. She knew something had happened to him. She started getting nervous. The wait for answers would go on for months. This really changed the course of your life, didn't it? Yes, I really don't have any peace. I don't have a life anymore. My life doesn't belong, belong to me anymore. That's, that's the part I really hate. I just should have made him stay with me. He just should have stayed with me. Yeah, because that made me feel crazy. I'm like, oh, 
my brother's living with me and he goes home to his mother and then he died. I'm like, he just should have stayed with me. Within weeks, Jeffrey Dahmer is out hunting again. On May 24th, 1991, at a gay bar in Milwaukee called the 219 Club, he approaches 31-year-old Tony Hughes, who is deaf. The pair have been loose acquaintances for a while and communicate via writing. Dahmer invites Hughes back to his apartment. Within hours, Tony Hughes would be dead, drugged, strangled, and then left on the bedroom floor for days. What is striking about Jeffrey Dahmer is that all of his victims, whether straight or gay, go with him willingly. I want to understand how he was able to do this. So I speak with LGBTQ historian Michael Takash, who was part of the gay scene in Milwaukee at the time of Jeffrey Dahmer's crimes. Can you tell us anything about how Jeffrey Dahmer would lure his victims? So I do have a former colleague who um, I worked with quite closely who was a bar manager at the bar that um, Jeffrey Dahmer unfortunately frequented. But this um, colleague shared that it was all about the charm. So people would come to the bar, and this was a mixed race bar, which was fairly common in Milwaukee's gay community and still is. For a very segregated city, Milwaukee's gay community was hardly segregated at all. Going back to the early years of the gay rights movement, from what I understand and from what I've read and learned and heard, Jeffrey Dahmer was a charmer, and he would charm people who really felt kind of invisible and felt unseen, and he would find those people and make them feel very, very seen. He would make them feel very, very important. And moving in on those people and making them feel recognized and validated and special in cases where maybe they didn't have that in their day-to-day life due to, you know, whatever reason, really made them susceptible to his, to his ways. That was really the M.O. of Dahmer, was to find people in a public place, charm them into trusting him, and then take them out of that environment where they, you know, had resources and a kind of a safety net to a place where he could control them completely. It's against this backdrop that Jeffrey Dahmer makes his preparations. If he's going to have so much death in his apartment, he needs a way to control it. He buys padlocks in case he needs to keep his victims secure, and a big blue vat to dissolve the bodies in acid. His activities do not go unnoticed by his neighbor, Vernell Bass, and his then-wife, Pam. Vernell is the author of Across the Hall and explains further. Something that may not have been easily explained away is in 1991, the blue barrel appears. Tell us what Dahmer said to you about that. Well, I went into his apartment for some reason, and I I noticed the barrel, the blue fat, in the kitchen in the middle of the floor, and it had the lid on it. And so I asked him, I said, I said, wow, Jeff, I said, man, why you got this? And he said, he was so smart. He didn't answer my question, but he did answer my question. He said, oh, I just wanted it. You know, okay, you know, I, I couldn't say for what, you know, or nothing like that, you know, that he answered my question. It, it was none of my business after that, you know. Yeah, you can't press. Yes, yes. 
And he told me that he had gotten it from his job and he called the cab and the cab came and picked him up. He put it in the trunk and then drove it, you know, drove it back to his apartment, to the building and in the cab. So you lived probably closest to him being right across the hall. Did you ever hear any unusual noises coming from his apartment? Yes, I heard a saw going. It was either a saw or a drill. And I couldn't distinguish the difference from one from the other. And I heard it one evening coming home from my classes that I had. And so I went in my apartment. I asked Pam, I said, wow, what is he doing over there? You know, what is he building? And she said that she had seen him bringing some wood into his apartment, and she thought that he was building a bookcase. Then two days later, I was coming in from my class, and I overheard him swearing. Motherfucker, see what you made me do? That's what I heard him say, yeah. And so I etched to the door to listen more, but it, it went silent. I didn't hear anything. Jeffrey Dahmer's neighbors noticed something else, too. A terrible smell. It was really bad. It, it would be really bad toward the night, but seemed like in the daytime it just lingered. And so that started, that started to make, to give people toward the end of the building that lived close to him, started to focus in on where the smell was coming from. And your then wife pinpointed it to Dahmer's apartment, didn't she? What she did was she set a chair in, in the hallway and, and left our door open and sat in our doorway and waited for him to come home. And that's when he told her, he apologized to her and gave her $20. And she let him use the fan to air out his apartment. And that's when he told her that his freezer had, had quit working and the meats must have spoiled inside the freezer. Vernell had no way of knowing the true source of the smell. The bodies Jeffrey Dahmer is disposing of within his own apartment. And things were about to get a whole lot worse. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60 day money back guarantee, and US News and World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. It's May 26, 1991, two days after the murder of Tony Hughes, and a 14-year-old boy named Conorak Synthesimphone is at the Grand Avenue Mall, Milwaukee. He's approached by an older man with dark blonde hair and glasses. The man offers to give him money to pose for some pictures. The boy accepts. But this is all a trap, all part of a cruel game. Once back at the apartment, Jeffrey Dahmer offers the child a drink. I'd say I wanted, let's have some coffee with some Irish cream in it uh, so the coffee would dissolve the pills. Uh, You know, they'd never see the pills in there. Uh, And that would be it. Uh, Within a half hour, they'd be asleep. While the boy is unconscious, Dahmer drills a hole in his head and administers the acid. Annie Schwartz. Can you explain what happens next? Jeffrey Dahmer went out of his house to get beer, wanted to get more beer. He had already drugged Conorak, but he didn't drug him enough. And while he was out of the house getting beer, Conorak woke up. They had already taken photographs. Conorak posed for some very uh, sexualized pictures for Dahmer. He took them with his Polaroid uh, and then passed out. But he woke up. And when he woke up, Jeffrey Dahmer was gone. Conorak doesn't know what's happening. He runs out of the house, runs down the alley. He's naked, but he's obviously drugged. What no one knows, not only was he drugged, but he had a very small hole drilled in the top of his head where Dahmer was attempting to inject uh, chemicals to create kind of zombies. In the street, Conorak is clearly distressed and a neighbor raises the alarm and calls emergency services. And it's a young man, he's butt naked, he has been beaten up, he's very bruised up. The police show up because a neighbor, a woman who lived in the alley across from Dahmer's apartment building, saw Conorak running up the alley and called the police. She said there's a boy running up the, the street naked and bleeding. Those were her words. When the police arrive, there is already an ambulance there. Conorak is sitting on the the back part of the ambulance, kind of like sitting in and out like you might if you were sitting on someone's tailgate uh, with with the silver or uh, 
blanket, looks kind of like a like aluminum foil. He's wearing that blanket, and the police are there. They're just going over to talk to Conorak and to the medics when Jeffrey Dahmer shows up. Now, Jeffrey Dahmer doesn't panic. It's important to tell this part of the story because lest I be called an apologist for the police, it's important to hear all of the pieces of this story. Remember who what Dahmer is. Dahmer is in a neighborhood that is riddled by crime. It is largely an African-American neighborhood. It is a poor neighborhood, uh, lots of challenges. And Dahmer walks up to the police, good evening, officers. He is calm. He doesn't act like anything is crazy wrong. He says, this is, uh, this is my boyfriend. And he got a little drunk. Okay, got real drunk. And I'm just, you know, I'll just, I'll take him back upstairs. I, you know, I, I feel bad that, uh, you know, that, that he inconvenienced you guys. They checked him out and figured he was real drunk. Uh, they told me to take him back. Uh, he was not wanting to go back. So uh, one officer grabbed his one arm and the other uh, grabbed his other arm on the other side and they escorted him to my apartment. Uh, They laid him on the sofa. What is striking to me about this moment is how Dahmer displays no anticipatory fear. It reminds me of the stories we heard about his childhood. Stealing the pig from class, standing in photos he wasn't supposed to be in, acting crazy in the mall. He simply doesn't have the heart-racing, blood-pumping somatic markers that come with the fear of consequence. He just doesn't get nervous like we do. Now, this is a feature of psychopathy, and I am not saying Jeffrey Dahmer is a psychopath, but he is clearly demonstrating this particular trait. And we've seen it before, when he was stopped with the body of Stephen Hicks, for example. Without anticipatory fear, he has the ability to stay cool, calm, manipulative, and goal-driven. He was an astute liar and a master manipulator. I use those words repeatedly because people are fond of, of saying that this is racial. And I'm, I'm, I, I tell the story the way that I remember it because I was there. I'm not retelling it because somebody else told me the story. I was living here in this city and I was covering this case as a reporter. I'd covered a lot of other cases as a reporter here. So... When I think about the atmosphere, when I think about the city, when I think about the police having contact with a literate, smooth human being without any of the other factors, their their hackles didn't go up either. Their antenna didn't go up either. So to their credit, the police don't say, oh, okay, and then leave. They say, well, let's go back upstairs with you to your apartment. So the officers go with Dahmer and cut. Now, why can't Conorak talk? Because first of all, he's not a great English speaker. Second of all, he's drugged, which Dahmer is explaining as being drunk. And he has a hole in his skull. So they take, uh, the police go with Dahmer back up to the apartment. And here's what Dahmer shows them. Dahmer's apartment looks like any apartment of just about any single guy that maybe didn't have a ton of money. Uh, it was it was very it was not a torture chamber. 
He did not have human remains in full view all over the home. He didn't have that. You walked in, you saw the living room. There was no probable cause for those officers to see any further in that home. I had the apartment, nice looking, uh, clean apartment. It didn't look like there was anything askew or anything, so uh, it was a big front. Uh, it worked my advantage. At this precise moment they are in Dahmer's apartment, all the police officers need to do is look around, and the nightmare would be over. They didn't go into my bedroom. Uh, if they had, uh, they would have seen the body of Tony Hughes still lying in there. I still talk with, with them to this day. And they always say, you know, really, do you think that it occurred to either one of us that maybe there are decomposing bodies in the next room? I mean, it's 1991. This case is, we never talk about this kind of thing. Dahmer has the pictures of Conorak. He's naked. He's posing. Conorak's clothing is folded neatly, the corner of the couch. And when Conorak sits down on the couch, they think he's intoxicated, he's drunk, uh, but he's not struggling to get away. He's not screaming for help. He's not trying to get away. So these are. this is all the information that the officers have as they're standing there. Not to be an apologist. That is what they're seeing. The officers leave Conorak's synthesimphone in the care of Jeffrey Dahmer and dial in the incident, laughing as they describe it. Intoxicated Asian naked male was returned to his sober boyfriend. And uh, we're going to be a minute. My partner's going to get de-loused at the station. He administers another syringe full of acid into the 14-year-old boy's head. It proves fatal, and he's dead within an hour of being left by the police. The neighbor who first alerted emergency services about Conorak calls the police again as she's concerned he is a minor. How old was this child? It wasn't a child, it was an adult. Are you sure? Yep. Are you positive? He's, uh, it's all taken care of, ma'am. Michael, even with the distance of 30-plus years, this moment in Dahmer's killing spree gives me chills still. The officers were so close to stopping him. How could this happen? The neighbor even called the police department to follow up. Well, that, I wish they'd handled it differently. I think if they had listened to this lady saying, no, go back or check, he's, he's younger than that, had they taken that more seriously and had they gone back that night to check again, just to follow up on that. Let's see his birth certificate. Let's see his wallet. We want to see how old he is. But had, And they'd gone back and checked that, just said, well, let's see. They, right then, they would, that would have ended it. They would have had him. Dahmer, had they started to check, they'd have found Tony, another body in the next room. They made a bad call. They could have done better, perhaps, but especially when responding to this woman's urging, check it out more closely. So Dahmer's this clean-cut white guy, and then there's a seemingly drunk Asian boy and another woman of color saying, hey, can you please check this out? This isn't what it looks like. Do you think that was playing into it? Like, okay, here we have the sophisticated white guy, and he's telling us that this is just his lover and it's no big deal. And somehow that trumped everything else they were seeing and hearing. One has to hope that wasn't it. Uh, how do you know? Annie Schwartz. I wish that the officers would have had a reason 
to look further. Maybe Dahmer could have been stopped that night. But they didn't. There was nothing. We're dealing with a master manipulator. Jeffrey Dahmer was a master manipulator. That manipulation extended to his family, to his schoolmates when he was young, to his uh, fellow uh, soldiers when he was serving in the army, later to the police, to the courts, to judges. He was a master manipulator. So to say that people were somehow, you know, duped by, by this murderer, yes, they were. I have no doubt that Jeffrey Dahmer, who isn't just smart, he's an IQ of 145, is manipulating those around him. But he's doing so in a way that knowingly plays on existing prejudice and preconceived notions of what a criminal looks like. I want you to listen to how Jeffrey Dahmer's neighbor, Vernell Bass, describes typical interactions with the police in that neighborhood. That area, I, I would guesstimate maybe a 12, a 12 to 15 block radius. If they saw a group of guys just congregating, a police car would pull up at high speed to jam on his brakes, all four doors would open, and the police would get out, and if they ran, then they had other squads around to try to apprehend that person if he ran. But if they didn't run, then the police would make them get up against the wall and search them and, you know, see whatever they could find. So that, that was going on quite a bit. The difference in how Dahmer is treated that night is stark. For Rita Isbell, whose brother had been murdered by Dahmer just a few months before, it's painful. Do you feel that law enforcement did enough to find your brother and prevent future crimes? You know better than that. Come on now. Okay. If you see a young man bleeding outside, you know that's a problem. When you think it's funny and let him take the child back to his apartment, what what police? You're not the police. You're an asshole. You're a criminal, too. Come on, this is a game to y'all. Y'all see how that is? Sweep it under the rug. That's how the whole Milwaukee is. Nobody pays attention to nothing. You got this man that chose this apartment building in this predominantly black neighborhood where you can do and get away with anything because nobody's paying attention. I return to Michael Takash. Do you think Dahmer selected his victims based on who he thought might not be missed as much, and then thereby he gets away with murder for a lot longer? I do, unfortunately, and it's no judgment of the victims or the lives that they lived or their families or their heritage or their upbringing. I think that he applied a very racist view to his victims. His ultimate goal was to make people into kind of mindless slaves which is really even more terrifying than the idea of killing people is the idea of subjugating them to this like half-life as a kind of undead, you know, zombie that's under the control of a master. The scariest part of all of this is that, you know, these people weren't missed immediately. And some of them certainly were, but the majority were not. And he knew that. 
another thing he quickly learned, because, you know, as he was navigating this whole system of his, he quickly learned that the police were kind of on his side. You're hitting on something here that is a theme, and it's that he's a very bright guy. I don't think anything he did was an accident. No, nothing he did was an accident. The location of his apartment was no accident. He went to a place where he thought that he wouldn't be seen or noticed because he was surrounded by people who were not seen by the authorities and who were not considered to be valuable. And again, another moment in time that I hope never comes again is a time where in a majority minority city, police officers don't listen to African-American women when they say something's wrong. I mean, they, the neighbors and the neighborhood sounded all kinds of alarm bells. The mothers of the victims sounded all kinds of alarm bells. And no one sat back and pieced this together, despite all the time, all the resources, and all the voices that were being raised. I, I still, to this day, don't understand how that happened. Like, I, I can't wrap my head around it at all. White, smooth-talking, bright Jeffrey Dahmer cruises around with a bloodied, clearly in an altered state, teenager. And it's, okay, let him go. At the time, I, I believe Conorak Synthesis was around my age. And although I was not friends with him and did not know him, I know people who did. To think that anyone could have mistaken that person for an adult making conscious decisions, much less an adult in a relationship with another man, I, I still don't understand any of this. Like, it's the the worst part of all of this is trying to understand what this police force was doing. It is almost harder to understand their actions than to understand the actions of the serial killer themselves, because he was simply being a predator, you know, a monster. Like, we can demonize Jeffrey Dahmer all we want to, but how does that explain the people who let this happen. That's what I struggle with the most. There's a final sting in this tale. Conorak Synthesimphone is the brother of the boy Dahmer had spent time in prison for sexually assaulting three years earlier. They became more objects than people. Uh, I didn't think of the families didn't think of what they'd go through. Uh, it just made it easier. Just sexual objects. In the next episode, Jeffrey Dahmer has another run-in with the police. Could this be the last? Mind of a Monster, Jeffrey Dahmer is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Arrow Media's producer is Rebecca Radil. Editor, Sirkin Nihat. Audio engineering by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. And our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Our archive producer is Katia Lohm. Arrow Media's series producer is Gabrielle Nash and executive producer is Stuart Pender. Jeffrey Dahmer is played by Andrew Groon. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.